we've struggled a little bit at the end of the season in the front row and our depth chart was just getting a little bit thin. Now it's got an awful lot thinner. Ironically, might have a weaker sub bench on the front row than a Leinster would have. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. Now then, you're very welcome back. We are reviewing the Sunday papers. Very happy to say, Ral Nugent is here in studio, commentator of well everything really at the moment. Six Nations, Champions Cup, November Series, URC, day job at Premier Sports as well. Former head of sport at RTE. You're very welcome to the studio. Good First to see time it. in in a what? In, yeah, two years. Long. Too literally, long. Literally, in studio. Uh, Timmy McCarthy with us as well, captain and coached the Irish basketball team, commentator at numerous Olympic Games. Hey, Timmy, great to have you with us. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Hi, Ryle. How are you doing, Tim? So I'll just run you through the back pages first of all. A lot of the tabloids awash with tales of Cristiano Ronaldo's departure from Manchester United. Ron Gone is the headline on the Sunday World. Cristiano Ronaldo says Kevin Palmer here has sensationally asked to leave Manchester United according to reports breaking in the UK last night. It seems Ronaldo is looking at a 19th consecutive season in the Champions League and he would quite like that as opposed to playing for Manchester United next year. Similar lead in the Sunday Sport. Ronaldo, let me go. Cristiano out is the headline there. Simon Mullock, Manchester United making plans for life without Cristiano Ronaldo. Sunday Mirror Sport can reveal that new boss Eric Ten Hag will urge United to replace the unhappy 37-year-old with Ajax's young Brazilian forward Anthony, is what the Sunday Mirror say. We have the sun then on the uh, top of Ronaldo, my way out. They have Banner. Read it and weep, or E-I-D, uh, it and weep. TJ Reid, brilliant yesterday for Kilkenny. Kilkenny, brilliant, full stop. And then we have Sunday Times. They're going with uh, Joey Carberry trying to touch that ball down and not quite getting it down. Pain in the neck is the headline. New Zealand 42, Ireland 19. Ireland still chasing first win over All Blacks in New Zealand after Auckland drubbing. And alongside that, Duncan Castles uh, with what everybody else has in their back pages. Ronaldo tells United he wants to go. Mail on Sunday. Their big lead picture is the hurling Supercats. Claire of no answer to Cody's masterclass. And alongside that, Ireland's progress clouded in doubt after Eden Park mauling. That's Shane McGrath, who will come to on the uh, tour in New Zealand. And then the Sunday Independent, finally, again, it is a picture of Keane Kenny after he scored his goal for Kilkenny. Ruthless Cats shine. And they were ruthless. We should have known, really. Brian Cody and all that. Not sure. I'm not sure. There's a line in one of the papers I can't remember. I think it might be Dennis. Um, Dennis Walsh who says, "Why are we surprised? Uh, what part of us is surprised?" And yet, and yet, I think everybody was surprised with just how clinical and magnificent they were in the first 15 minutes yesterday. Yeah, know? one wide in 35 minutes. I know Claire at 24 and all, but we'll call that emphatic. Emphatic, uh, Timmy. It was a very emphatic performance by Kenny. I was surprised by Claire's performance. I must say, I thought that. Uh, in Munster they played really well I know that against Wexford they, they slipped up a bit but I was expecting a big performance but Clare were built around Tony Kelly and you've got to give Kilkenny and Cody great credit for shutting down that avenue really and you know when you shut Tony Kelly down for, for Clare it gives them real problems so on one hand Clare had problems with wides and with their star player being shut out of the game really and on the other hand Kilkenny showed incredible efficiency I mean one wide in 35 minutes you know, in, in the critical 35 minutes of the game was very impressive. So, yeah, it's it's interesting that, you know, they've they've stepped it up because in Leinster they looked, you know, sort of so-so at times, but they really stepped up yesterday and are a real contender now um, for the Liam McCarthy. Uh, just if you have younger 
ears in the car on at home the first story we're going to turn to is not suitable for younger listeners and it also uh, carries a warning I appreciate that a conversation along these lines could be uh, triggering for uh, many people and upsetting for many people and I would say at the outset as well that the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre have a 24 hour helpline which is 1877 or you can google Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and find details there. So we'll be talking about this for, I would think, uh, the guts of the next 10 minutes and we'll take an ad break then and return to the sports. So I just want to give you a due warning, if I can. Now would be a good time to make a change for the next couple of moments. We're talking about Vera Powell's revelation on Twitter uh, this weekend on Friday evening, which um, prompted enormous reaction online and it's followed up here in the Sunday papers, as you might imagine, in particular by Shane McGrath in the Mail on Sunday and Paul Rowan here in the Sunday Times. The Paul Rowan headline is uh, Powell's allegations are being taken seriously. She has the full support of the FAI. Ugly side of the beautiful game is the headline. Uh, so I'm acutely aware as well of Vera Powell's a request for uh, some privacy and also that the the details of this uh, are uh, difficult for people. Uh, there is also though, Kevin Doyle yesterday in the Irish Independent and uh, Paul Rohn here, there is a discrepancy in uh, their reporting of the uh, rape allegation as to how often or how many instances it happened on. And so we're going to approach that um, area with extreme caution. So Kevin Doyle yesterday in the Irish Independent uh, had some details uh, generally around this. So the Independent sister paper, NRC, have been investigating what happened between POW and the uh, Dutch FA. And they've spoken to POW and to 25 other people as part of this investigation. And so Kevin Doyle yesterday in the Irish Independent detailed some of the findings uh, the uh, rape allegation stems from 1986 when Pau was a 23-year-old player and the alleged attacker is a coach, a football coach, 14 years her senior and they met initially at a football tournament and then subsequently the following year is when the alleged attack took place. Uh, like I said, there is a slight discrepancy in the reporting between the Sunday Times account and the independent account, so won't delve too deeply into uh, the details. Suffice to say, there is an allegation of rape. Vera Pau reported it to the Dutch police last month, certainly, and uh, the man in question, and this is in Kevin Doyle's piece in the Irish Independent, the man in question was approached as part of that NRC investigation, the newspaper over in the Netherlands, and he said, I'm stunned by the allegation. Nothing inappropriate has happened in that regard, not in my whole life, by the way. Uh, Vera Pau also detailed two sexual assaults which happened in the 1990s, and uh, she's hopeful of a prosecution there. Again, these are uh, people involved very much officially in the game in uh, Dutch football and KNVB and Kevin Doyle's piece uh, released a statement I'm sure you've seen uh, where they certainly talk about failings subsequent to the allegations being made they say we should have tackled a number of things differently. Unfortunately, Vera has been uh, confronted in the past with a number of errors and harmful comments from uh, former KNVB employees. So Kevin Doyle's piece has uh, detail in conjunction with the NRC paper, has detail on the nature of the attacks. Paul Rowan, in his piece, uh, details some of the treatment that Vera Pau was allegedly on the receiving end of after these incidents. So he talks about how in 1988 she left Holland to play in Italy saying she felt quote the shame was still immense end quote over what had happened 
and uh, on return to Holland she went to work again for the KNVB and so reading here from Paul Rowan's piece Pau is reported to have uh, a witness when her former assailant returned to the office one day and went to slap her around the buttocks but she said if you do that I'll beat you to death uh, he says here, Paul Rowan, the whispering against Pau intensified when she and the women's national team coach Bert van Lingen started a relationship in 1992. Her detractors said Pau would do anything to play for the national team. Gossip, which Pau found very painful because Bert and I are crazy about each other, it's still the reason we're together. Uh, she went on to have great success, as we know, in Dutch football, regarded as one of the main architects of Dutch women's football. They reached the 2009 uh, European uh, Championships, their first uh, major tournament, the women's team, and they finished third. So it was around this time, post-09, where again, uh, writes Paul Rowan here in the Sunday Times, it was at this point that prominent people started to listen to some of Pau's complaints. And she says that everything was discussed, including the sexual abuse uh, with the technical director at the time and a follow-up meeting with other senior figures within KNVB. Uh, There was an apology, yet NRC, that's the newspaper I mentioned, yet NRC reported that the sexual abuse allegations were not followed up. Uh, Pau made similar allegations to uh, the then technical director of KNVB, but again, the matter wasn't followed up. Uh, So it's said that uh, Van Praag, he was the then technical director, he did make Pau a KNVB uh, national knight, a big honour over in Dutch football, which he said was an honourable and sincere gesture from him, but also intended by the union to keep me quiet, is uh, Vera Pau's sense of that. And then a final point... There appears to have been uh, conversations which culminated in KNVB agreeing to an agreeing to an independent investigation into the allegations, and that report was made public outside of their control. So the author of that report, Marion Alfers, a professor of sports and law, was highly critical, and she uh, said. She or he, excuse me, I don't know if Marjan is uh, male or female. He or she said that the negative behaviour of KNVB officials towards Pau had, quote, a systemic character, end quote, and that the negative image of her was, quote, maintained and nourished time and again so that things have become a self-fulfilling prophecy, end quote. And so it seems Pau set a deadline of June 12th for discussions about the findings of this report, but she felt she was being fobbed off until after the Women's European Championships which start this week and Paul Rowan writes here now she has cut off discussions with KNVB after reading the independent report last month Pau reported the rape and sexual assaults to police in Amsterdam and that brings us Ryle about to where we are give or take yeah um, you know the, there are a couple of articles uh, this weekend and this weekend that that um, managed to lay out the the facts as they are known and, and that part is the legal quagmire, I guess. But what isn't is the human tragedy and pain. And there's no dispute around that. And that is handled, I think, magnificently by, by Shane McGrath in uh, in the Irish Mail on Sunday. Uh, it's a powerful piece. It's an empathetic piece. It's a sensitive piece. Um, and, and actually, you feel on a moment like this, you could nearly read the entire piece. I won't. But I will finish with his I'll start with his finish Um, so he says in the end we can Shane this is Shane McGrath in the the Irish Mail on Sunday we can offer our words of support but we can take the words of others the testimonies of abuse and suffering and put them out in the world they need to be read and absorbed that in some minor way of honouring the story and the bravery of people like Vera Pau and 
and I think that's that surmises uh, uh, Shane's piece at the beginning. He talks in a quote: "The mighty figure." Um, uh, has had a tremendous impact on Irish sport, that being Pau, since being appointed the manager of the women's team. But her influence has now spread far beyond the confines of professional soccer. She's a national figure. Her story has filled headlines over the past 24 hours. Pau is one more woman who has somehow mustered the courage to share a horrendous experience, knowing the pain and scrutiny it will attract, hoping that it will serve someone else in similar straits. And the pain was palpable in Pau's statement. One section in particular for her was heart-wrenching. For the past 35 years, she wrote, I have kept this abuse private. I've allowed uh, the memory of it to control my life, to fill me with daily pain and anguish, to dominate my inner feelings. To many, I'm seen as a brash and loud football coach and manager, a tough woman who has risen to the top in a man's world. Nothing could be further from the truth. And then Shane writes, just imagine the effort, the discipline, the sacrifices it has taken to reach the level in her sport that Pau now occupies. And it continues in that vein, and it is a, it is a a really uh, engaging piece uh, that I'm I, I'm struggling to find the, the right words to 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 say in this instance. It is it is what what Vera Power has been through is is horrific. It is beyond anything I think any of us can really get our heads wrapped around. Mm. And it's very clear in the KNVB statements, and and Paul Rowan has detailed some of the fallout that she endured over, well, decades after making the allegations. How difficult that must have been on top, obviously, of the trauma from the alleged incidents. And you read the line of her statement that Shane highlighted and that jumped out to me, where she talks about 35 years of daily anguish and allowing the memory of it control my life, fill me with daily pain and anguish to dominate my inner feelings. That is a long time to be living with that kind of pain and that kind of trauma. Uh, Tim, I know you're reading these pieces as well. Yeah, I, I think that Shane McGrath, I think his opening sent, sentences were really, you know, really heart feeling, heartfelt. Um, words are inadequate. I mean, I think that's the sad thing about this. First of all, you know, it, it, as Ryle said, it's a human being, right, who for 35 years has had to deal with, you know, with this individually, you know, from her own point of view. And, you know, never mind going through, you know, meeting these people, you know, and... I, I think Kevin Palmer had a piece actually in, in the um, Sunday World talking about the FAI support, and I think mm. that was really, really nice that it was called out immediately about the support that the FAI are, are, are giving Vera Powell in that sense. But I think Shane McGrath's piece of the three pieces to me brings it to the human, the humanity of it in, mm. in that sense. It's very sad. I mean, let's be very clear. This is very sad. There's a legal situation going on. It's reported to the Dutch police, so that will take its own course in that sense. But this is really sad in, in, in that, you know, a 22-year-old, you know, um, makes allegations, you know, in, in nearly in her 60s of being raped and, and assaulted at different stages in, in her career. Yeah, and, 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 and Sorry, Timmy, I just cut across you there because, because it's not just, a, you know, it's not just about what, 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 what I'm struggling with, again, reading this is how often we're reading it, how often these conversations are taking place, how how appallingly treated so many now middle-aged and actually in, 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 in the United States recently, young women have been treated by people in power, by men in power. And, and I'm, it's, it's sickening. It's, I'm, it's, what, it's what, a sickening reflection of society and what, what power and, and abuse of power can do to other people. And, and it, 
it turns your stomach when you spend five seconds thinking about it. It, it is just, and just everything. Just to develop that, Royal. Yeah. Just to develop that point, I, I was going to make the point. Like it's a reflection of life. Like this situation with Vera Powell is just a reflection. You know, to develop your point, Royal, of life. You know, this goes on. You know, people in power abuse their position, and there's nothing worse. Okay, you know, then you know, abusing somebody in, in this sexual and psychological way. That because she was psychologically abused as well. You know, sometimes we, we, because obviously there's an allegation of rape and sexual assault. You know, that can grab the headline headlines. But she was psychologically abused as well. They spoke badly about her. If, if you read the subtext of some of the articles, so you know, it, it's it's sickening. I mean, it's a sickening situation. You know, the sad thing is, you know, these things go on today. You know, th- these are not, you know consigned to the 80s like this still goes on in, in, in our world where where people abuse power and predominantly the people are men okay mm. i mean that's a predominant situation it's not a hundred percent men but it's predominantly men in that sense and you know like we've we, we've had our own situation in, in in ireland where you know we've had sports coaches and sports people you know a, a, a abuse you know children teenagers and and adults okay so you know this is not unique to, to you know to to, to holland i mean but i think the big thing here we should never forget you have you you have a, a very successful sports coach who has the ability to compartmentalize this challenge in our life mm. and still be successful because the sad thing is from a human point of view is there are many people who have endured situations like this that that Vera Powell is alleging who just didn't get through these things mm. there are many people who just you know despite the support of you know centers like the Dublin Race, Rape Crisis Center and other great bodies around this just psychologically found it just too challenging to get through this and you have to admire her psychological and mental resilience to still you know succeed in a game to walk go back to the knvb world and be so successful despite the fact that you know many people in that organization you know had had, had views on her which were not the most complimentary and, and there were some people who who she alleges um sexually assaulted so i have to say i, I thought the paul Rohn piece was was very sort of systematic and it, it just laid out the facts mm. from his perspective and as you said Joe there was some contrast with the, with, with the ones from yesterday but I thought Shane McGrath's piece got the human side of it I thought that as I said you know words feel hopelessly in, inadequate but words can reflect convictions and from that can come change yeah and, and both pieces of huge value I mean uh, establishing uh, certain facts and what happened Absolutely. very very important here and Paul Rohn does a brilliant job of that and, and as you said Shane McGrath writes so empathetically and he does make the point you know the Dutch Football Association has scrambled to react with statements of regret and vows to make amends and he makes the point as well uh, which struck me on Friday imagine what it's been like for her as she prepared to go public with her story and I was suddenly thinking back to the game they played last week and Mm. I'm sure at moments it was crossing her mind I mean she probably had made her mind I'm going public in the short term and he says imagine imagine the pain in recalling what happened sharing the details of the attacks against her all the while knowing it would immediately dominate news cycles and this after a week in which she'd brought her team to Georgia uh, it feels tried to hail her strength yet it's impossible not to be left uh, reeling by it a remarkable figure and he does make the point as well this story will run and run uh, she'll be asked about it it will frame how she's perceived in some cases 
that she was able to endure, let alone succeed to such an extent while keeping the stories of what happened to her mostly to herself, both amazing and heartbreaking, but uh, telling it to the world will present new challenges. As she wrote in her statement, I know there will be more heartache to come. And, so she, and she's aware of what's yeah, happening and, and, and that, happen. yeah, and, and that is part of here, this that is so hard to get your head wrapped around. It's the length of time that these issues take to be investigated and if required, prosecuted and come to a conclusion so as somebody can, however they do, get some sort of closure around those horrific incidents. It, 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 it strikes me in everyday life and, and, and in sporting life as well, when it happens in sporting life, that these cases seem to drag on interminably and, and how that must be for the people that are living through them is, you know, in, in addition to the actuality of what happened, the, the fact of having to live it every day is, again... I don't think we can quite understand it. Yeah. Well, it seems uh, these allegations are now being taken seriously. They're with the police. And therefore, I think while there is now a, a very public aspect to this uh, situation, that's about as much as we can say, certainly. And we'll, we'll let things play out in the Netherlands for the time being. Again, I'm very conscious, acutely aware this conversation is potentially not what people tuned in to hear and it will be upsetting and triggering for some. So the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre 24 hour helpline the number again is 1800 77 88 88 and if you Google that you'll uh, find the details there, all the details you need to uh, reach out if you need to. We'll take a very short break we're back with Royal Nugent and Tim McCarthy in just one moment. You're very welcome back. Joe Malloy here, Royal Nugent in studio. Tim McCarthy is with us as well going through the Sunday papers. We will turn to well, there is endless coverage, <laughs> endless words, all the words you want on New Zealand 42, Ireland 19. We will come to the HIA pieces after we deal with, I suppose, the match analysis. Where do you want to start, Ryle? It was comprehensive on the scoreboard, certainly. What's the general sense in the papers? Uh, general sense is probably Ireland were, were made to pay, well, Ireland made to pay for, for the errors that they made, all blacks back to their clinical best, Ireland looking a little bit heavy-legged, some creaks in the armoury, some chinks in the armour that that are concerning and we're about to find out whether those chinks are cracks or fissures in the next uh, fortnight or so. Um, and all around, I guess Peter O'Reilly's uh, piece on page two of the Sunday Times is probably the the best place to start and he gives a really good um, overview of, of, of what we saw yesterday. I think his, his second paragraph, some things are um, are immutable. However, give the All Blacks cheap possession, especially off turnovers and they'll hammer you mercil- mercilessly. That's what happened during the disastrous second quarter for Ireland when they conceded four tries in the space of 17 minutes. A period notable for the brilliance of the halfbacks Aaron Smith and Bowden Barrett, but also for the tourist generosity in possession. You know, I was thinking about it and, you know, if you, if you, if you take the component parts of, of what makes a, a great rugby team, so the skill set, the accuracy, the strength and abrasiveness, the individual brilliance, and, and then you try and break it down and say, well, what are Ireland? Well, we're, we're not the top of the tree in any of those things. But what we do have, for me, and this is just my own personal theory, is we have rhythm. 
and that rhythm comes after three or four phases you know and, and then we hit five and six and our accuracy is fantastic and we've got guys doing things that are distracting defences and they're fixing defences and they're making dummy runs and there's Gibson Park and Sexton are, you know they've got the cigars and the, and the brandy out and they are playing and it is just fantastic to watch once we get to four or five and they're dragging defences everywhere and they're making the opposition guess all the time the problem is how do you stop that from an opposition's perspective well you, you stop us getting into that rhythm and, and, and New Zealand did that really really well yesterday you know they 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 haven't got the most dominant scrum in the world but they made the scrum really uncomfortable for Ireland they got in Ireland's faces at the line out you know they were they they mauled better than Ireland. They were better at the breakdown. Some of that breakdown work for for me as objectively as I can looking at it was illegal. They were clearing out behind the rook. You know, but but they did all the things that we would have done to them if we if we felt we could get away with it. And we tested a referee who didn't who didn't react to it. And by the way, I'm not making excuses here. This is this. There's no part of me. The better team won this and won it comfortably. But but how did New Zealand do it? They they broke that rhythm. They stopped us getting into that after that opening ten minutes where we hit that beautiful rhythm that we can we can hit. New Zealand did everything to stop us hitting that rhythm. And and in that second quarter, they absolutely nailed us. Uh, and and every mistake we made, they punished. And and the the the, the you know Peter O'Reilly back to to the Sunday Times. They messed Ireland around at the lineout and they outmauled them. They did. Uh, they did them at the breakdown too often rucking well beyond the ball taking green, sh- green shirts out illegally in short they did what they could get away with and kept doing it until the 77th minute when referee Carl Dixon finally showed a yellow card but it was too little yeah. too late and, and I think that sums it up perfectly Neil Francis for instance uh, Sunday Times Ireland appeared to have little chance without Sexton so this could be a tough tour is the byline he does say uh, Joe Schmidt's fingerprints all over this win the Aviva last year Ireland blew New Zealand away at the breakdown and dominated collisions accuracy is hard to gauge in such a violent phase of the game but New Zealand shaped and fashioned the clear out with such precision that Ireland pretty much had to stand off the rook and try and guess Aaron Smith's next move it was where the game was won it is Schmidt's stock and trade and it was the most significant improvement in the All Blacks performance when they lost to Ireland and France last year. Yeah, but what, what that doesn't, what Neil's article doesn't address, and I think is key in this, is is I think yesterday as a collective game of uh, our collective games proved what we already knew, and and but proved it very clearly yesterday, which is when when the Northern Hemisphere teams travel south in in July, or the Southern Hemisphere's travel north in November, it's the end of the respective seasons. And at that point, the players are cooked. Mm. They're done mm. on both sides. So they're they're emotionally done, they're physically done, and they, they have nothing more to offer. So it's stacked against the travelling side. Does that mean it can't be achieved? No, it doesn't, but it really does show that there is no, you know, there, that, that there is no room for error. And 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 I think that has a huge part of 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 what happened yesterday. I also think, you know, we forget as as journalists and as broadcasters and as and as, and as fans, the fans forget as well the the physical effort that goes in to, to into rugby in particular, and and also the miles on the clock when you've done that seven, eight, nine, ten seasons at the top, mm. and and. And I don't think it's any surprise that Dan Sheehan was arguably Ireland's strongest forward yesterday for 80 minutes. He's the youngest, the youngest, and he's got the least miles on the clock. Mm. And and he was still going great guns at the end of that game yesterday. So 
So in the end, maybe it shouldn't be a big surprise. Like you go to the home of arguably the best, consistently the best team in the world over the last 20 years and, and you, you're you not on your A game and you get opened and and so be it. You know, yeah. it is what it is. And, and, and really what it also proves to me is the World Cup is really the only leveller because everybody arrives into that in the same sort of condition. Mm. They have the same preparation time and, and in some ways, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm probably going on too long now, but, but and I, I think it's worth considering that Ireland's greatest strength in some ways is also Ireland's greatest weakness. So the player management that allows the national coach have more time than any other coach of a tier one team with their players and mines the players uh, uh, week to week with their with their club schedule when it comes to a World Cup that is dissipated because all of a sudden all the nations have lots of time with their preparation they have control over their best players they all come in with a full pre-season so that gap that Ireland are able to exploit with the management of the players isn't there for a World Cup and and everybody comes in fresh to that but have Ireland improved Absolutely, over the last five, six years, Ireland have improved. Have they improved to the point that we can say they're going to get, look like a team that are going to get to a semi-final of a World Cup? I don't think we can. Mm. I genuinely don't think we can. And part of the problem here is we keep building it up to believe that that they will. And the evidence is saying that's not true. Mm. Yeah, increasingly that is the case. So we're talking here with Ryan Nugent and Tim McCarthy. We're just going to... Tim, I can sense you that you're ready to go. You're fired <laughs> Sorry, up. Sorry, Tim. Unfortunately, we're going to have to break off for news. So we're going to come back to you in just two seconds. We've had loads of pieces to chat through here. Bernard Jackman, for instance, the headline of his piece is we're out of our depth and we're drowning fast. And he's talking about really just how threadbare Ireland are in the scrum, for instance. And Neil Francis even makes that point that um, Ireland have been troubled in this area for far too many times. So we'll come back to Bernard Jackman's piece and the uh, HIA controversy on the uh, rugby front in just one moment. We'll take news, though, uh, back in a second, like I said, news with Tina Gates. Now you're welcome back. We're back with the Sunday Papers. Tim McCarthy is here, captain and coach of the Irish basketball team, commentator at numerous Olympic Games. Ral Nugent, uh, commentator, uh, Six Nations, Champions Cup, November Series, works at uh, Premier Sports. Obviously, that is very much the day job as well. We are in the midst of discussing Ireland, New Zealand, and we were just there before we left touching on the scrum issues, for instance. And Tim, I'll bring you in in a moment here on this because this jumped out to me, certainly. So Neil Francis and Peter O'Reilly and various others touching Ireland's uh, trouble at the scrum. Bernard Jackman pretty much makes it the big focus of his two-page piece. And the headline is, we're out of our depth and we're drowning fast. And Bernard Jackman says, yes, we had some bad luck with the injury to Jeremy Lockman and Finley Beelham succumbing to COVID but he says for a tier one country to have to draft in a last minute player Michael Bent who's practically retired and played his last semi-pro match in November as a 24th man is pretty embarrassing we'll hear the excuses about delayed flights and the cost of bringing 42 instead of 40 but this cake has been years in the oven one scrum at international and provincial level sorry our scrum at international and provincial level has been creaking but it seems no one noticed will this tour be our Tom Court at Twickenham moment and he talks how uh, after the Tom Court at Twickenham moment 
Ireland uh, put a big emphasis on the scrum and Greg Feek moved full time into the IRFU and there was a national scrum development programme and he thought that was a fantastic idea, Bernard Jackman and very uh, a very New Zealand-esque type model and that seems to have slipped. Uh, Feek allowed to go part time with Ireland and also coach in Japan and the Green Rockets in 2018 and doesn't seem to really have been replaced in any grand way and uh, Bernard Jackman says I don't blame the current scrum coach John Fogarty he's a disciple of Feek has a high level of knowledge detail the reality is that 90% of the work in developing front rows happens before they get to international level and he says effectively Andrew Porter Tyke Furlong are being asked to play for longer than their opponents if one gets injured we are in even deeper trouble we're already conceding too many penalties and I wouldn't even rank the All Blacks in the top five scrums in the world so it sort of seems Tim when you look at the general coverage we lose Johnny Sexton or we lose Andrew Porter or we lose Tyke Furlong and we're really not at the races. We're in big, big trouble. So there's a, a fairly significant Achilles heel for all the progress of the last number of years. We spoke about this, Joe, uh, before the Autumn Internationals and at the time I made a point uh, in our conversation about um, what are these uh, you know, tests, friendlies I called them at the time and I think I got some criticism, but <laughs> tests, or fri- tests or friendlies, we, we, we agree <laughs> to differ. What are they about? I mean, the whole idea is to be ready for the World Cup next year. And I, I think when you look at, you know, the Neil Francis uh, piece and, and the Bernard Jackman piece, they call out frailties that are very becoming much more obvious. I mean, I think Jackman's basically um, point is we're not bringing new blood in. I mean, his his overarching point, he talks actually about Jack Boyle, who was out in, in Loosehead in the 17-16 win against France. He was the outstanding player. At 20s and, level, yeah. Mm. Yeah, at under-20s. And you know, he's not involved. Where, where the French have an under-20 guy, uh, Fabian Galtier, and he's now, you know, in the French senior squad. So it's Jackman's point, I think, is is that you know we're out of Sexton, we're out, you know, Forlong and Porter. I mean, I think Porter played eighty minutes yesterday, and Forlong sixty six. You know, no other top top country, you know, in, in rugby are playing, you know, the scrum key people that length of time in that sense, right? So that's a real because we don't have the players that come on and replace them. But I think the big thing for me is that um, the team is not being freshened. Okay, I think the key players, Sexton, Forlong and Porter, particularly Sexton um, and, and from, like, you know, we have a real problem. I mean, you know, they talk about it. Neil Francis makes it clear we have no chance without Sexton. I don't agree with that. I, I believe that this manager has failed in, in, in getting a replacement for success for, for Johnny Sexton. I think that I spoke previously with you, Joe, and said we've got a mind Sexton, you know, but, you know, at this stage, he's going to be 38 next year. And Shane McGrath in his piece in, in the Mail on Sunday talks about the over-reliance of Sexton his headlines is, has become now truly pitiful. So when I look at it from an international coaching point of view, I say, okay, what's our agenda here, right? Is our agenda that we now believe, that Andy Farrell believes, this team will compete in the World Cup next year? Ryle has laid his cards on the table and saying, we won't get to the semi-final. So is Andy Farrell saying that this team will compete in the World Cup next year? And if he is saying that, there's not enough evidence, okay, in, in the Six Nations and in, in this first match of, of a three-test, that we will compete to get to the, the, the business end of the situation with the current, with the current um, players that we have available to us. And then Michael Bent, point that Bernard Jackman makes, is just sort of funny, really, Joe, if you think about it. Okay? A guy who has gone from the game, who's playing semi-professional, you know, and, and just we, we pick him up because we're stuck. I mean, it's, it's, it's a travesty when you consider some of the younger talent that we, 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 we could be nurturing in this sense. So my concern after yesterday, it's a game, it's a result. You know, the All Blacks are the best in the world at exposing mistakes. And when we made mistakes, they exposed us. 
Okay, and they do that all the time. And they they wear on the illegal side from time to time, but they've got away with that for a long time. But what they did was in the, in the set piece part of the game, they dominated us. Okay, in the scrum, they gave us real problems when they're not, you know, as the experts would say, in the top five scrumming nations. So they gave us a lot of problems around the field. And Joe Smith's influences, Neil Francis said, was apparent. My concern for the Irish rugby team right now is not yesterday's result or the result over the next two weekends is what's our objective is do we believe that the 50 starters which was really supposed to be in our starting lineup are good enough to perform in the world cup next year and if we don't believe that we have a year to change it but right now you know it looks like andy farrell is saying in his selection and, and in his commentary i mean even his commentary after the game and i know we're going to talk about ha later but you know that Johnny will be okay. If it looks like he'll be okay for next week. I mean, it is really not a good position for us to be in, where, where our captain goes off with a head injury, and we're now saying, you know, we're depending on him for next week. So, my, my, if I broaden the conversation to say the papers highlight the issues we have, and I'm just going to add on to that and say, is our team good enough to win in the World Cup or to perform at the, at the business end of the next year? And if it's not. We need to make changes there. I, I, I just pick up on something Timmy's there. I think the Michael Ben thing. I think we can get. We we need to deal with that separately. Like for in the first week to lose Jeremy Lockman, for Keane Healy to get injured, for Finley Beelham to get COVID, for like you know it, that was just bad luck. And they are on the other side of the world. I mean, and if you took forty two, you would have still had a problem, you know. And then Ed Byrne gets delayed on the way over, and like I, I think there were some questions about whether they brought enough hookers or not, and Niall Scannell going up. But but I think we can overstate that. So. So I can. I think sometimes you just have to put it down to bad luck, and not bad preparation. So that and that would be my view around around the prop issue. I I take the point that that Timmy's making that a lot of the papers are making here. But the facts the facts are in my in my view that we have a depth chart issue at at out half and and at prop forward after you go beyond Porter and Furlong. And one of the reasons that Porter is there is because the IRFU recognised they had a problem and a depth chart problem. And the coaching staff reacted to that in the best way with with the best available uh, uh, tools at their disposal. So, you know, the, the question, and Bernard is right to ask the question about the future, but the question he's asking about the future, in my view, is about a World Cup, a cycle from now, not not the World Cup that's coming in, in 18 months' time. Um, and, and the truth is, there are key players that if they get injured, we are going to be in more trouble than when we have them fit and available. I mean, look, the Sexton issue, the over-reliance on Johnny Sexton is not news this morning. Like, it's not news three years ago. It is what it is. And, and John, Johnny is more fragile now than he was because of the way he plays and because of the miles that he has on the clock. I think, and we'll come to the HI thing, AI HIA issue in a moment but Johnny Sexton for two reasons should not play next week and I'd argue the week after number one and predominantly because he has got a head injury of some sort and shouldn't be back out on a pitch next week and number two we now need to find out about Joey Carberry who came in yesterday and actually did okay but came in when the chaos was there rather than the control from the beginning so give the guy the opportunity to play if you believe in him because Look, facts are facts. The law of averages are what they are. Ireland rocking up to a quarterfinal in the World Cup with a fit Jonathan Sexton for 80 minutes is at best questionable from this distance. Mm. So what's your plan B? And, and if your plan B is Joey Carberry or your plan B is, 
is Rossburn then give them the opportunity and the Six Nations will not be the place to do it because unfortunately there is prize money around the Six Nations that is important to the IRFU's coffers and they can't afford to finish fourth, fifth or sixth because we're planning for a World Cup when they actually need to finish first, second or third mm. to keep the, the books balanced, you know? So that sorry. So there's, there's a couple of things. No, no, no. There, they're know? all really good points. And if Andy Farrell uh, was to go at Carberry for the next two weekends, and Ireland are roundly beaten, what will the reception be? Can he afford to go? I think over he can. Three? I yeah. think he. I think he can. I think he can now afford to lay his cards out. We are where we are. There is a recognition that we've got a decent group of players. They're not going to become a bad squad overnight. They are in New Zealand. A little bit like the women's hockey team going to play in 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 the World Champions backyard in in Holland yesterday. The Irish men's rugby team going to play in New Zealand's backyard. Everybody understands that the challenge that that brings mm-hmm. and the potential downside of that. So I don't. I think he's got enough credit in the bank. I think Irish rugby's national team has enough credit in the bank to say actually this is the right thing for us to do and if and if at the end of that we we get we get uh, spanked then yeah. then we found out and then we move to the next one for the November international because the flip side of that argument is it's very important if you're going to do something at the world cup to win one down there and bring that sense of belief into next year that you've won on New Zealand soil and that's the next step for this team and it would be historic and these tours are rare so why would you pass up very rare opportunities to go and get a win and that means you play sexton you play your best team you really go for it you know these are the things he's grappling with. Bernard Jackman's piece really points the finger more so at David Nusifora, I would say, and just the lack of development on the prop front. I think with Sexton, we all have to acknowledge there was something freakish about the fact that there was O'Gara and then ready to take up the mantle perfectly was Sexton. Uh, Like we're doing a World Player of the Year here, uh, by all accounts a legendary figure. And just what's happened unexpectedly and unfortunately over the last 18 months is the gap has probably widened between Sexton and the rest and it's just a difficult situation. Everybody's acutely aware he's 38 and yet he's so obviously Ireland's best chance to win a game. So it's it's difficult and who knows if playing Joey Carberry makes all that much difference come World Cup time. I mean, he played in Paris, he played against the Italian Six Nations, he has been getting time. He's not really captured form at Munster. There's a degree of responsibility to do it for Munster first to really force your way in as opposed to, you know, the strongest argument at the moment is we know you're nowhere near as good as Johnny and you're not closing the gap but we're just going to play anyway in the hope that that happens. That's But it's not that's a specific difficult. it's not a specifically Irish problem either. I mean, you look at South Africa yesterday against Wales who are a pretty complete although they didn't show it are a pretty complete team. They don't know who their out half is. They keep yeah. chopping and changing because it is such a it is the pivotal position and the Dan Carter Johnny Sexton quality that is that extra whatever percentile it is is yeah. so rare you're looking for the golden nugget every single time yeah. and and we have a golden nugget and the, and look at England England Owen Farrell in his pomp when they were playing in a certain way was their number 10 they aren't sure who their number 10 is right now is it Marcus Smith is it George Ford is it they don't know that's why I'd um, you'd almost forgive all concerned for this reliance on Sexton it's it's down to Sexton's brilliance Correct. every bit as much as anything else but what's unforgivable when you read Bernard Jackman's piece is what's been allowed to happen at prop over the last five, six, seven years. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, yes, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I just want to say, Ryle is very upset with this conversation. It's getting to him. He's feeling it's it. Not, just, Go on, Tim. Yeah, no, and, and I can understand why Ryle is, is, is feeling it. I mean, look, the thing about it, right, Johnny Sexton, okay, was world player of the year. Johnny Sexton in his prompt was one of the best out halves ever to play the game. Let's be very clear. You, and, I, and you made a point that, you know, or Ryan made a point that he followed Ronald Gar. So we, we were fortunate with like the 
you know, Tony Ward, Ali Campbell. We, we were fortunate to have, you know, stars at, at the high, highest end of the game, right? Okay. The problem we have right now, okay, is that we have the two key areas. Out half is the critical area, and the scrum is the next critical area. Mm-hmm. We have vulnerabilities. And the challenge for the coach is to solve that issue. I don't, I don't think he can. I don't think, I actually genuinely, I'm not sure Andy Farrell can so, solve the prop issue. Who's coming through? Like, who's, who are we picking here? Right. No, I accept and that, and that is, is. Uh, Sorry, and so, and that's where my point is that you, you've just uh, nailed in one sentence what I've been trying to say for five minutes. That is the issue for me. It's not, it, it just isn't there. No, he, unless he brings someone in magically, but he can't. Yeah. So that's why, you, I, Timmy, you can please pick it up. But that's predominantly, that's why you'd go to the World Cup with no great sense of expectation. That Sexton, Furlong and Porter, all three of them pitch up in a quarterfinal in rude health seems very unlikely. And, and, and for me, you know, that's a disservice, I would say, Joe, to, to the rest of the players who, you know, in, in the context, I mean, that they will go to the World Cup with no expectations. Because I believe this Irish team have great expectations. And I think yesterday, the fact that they kept going to the end of the game, when, when other Irish teams in the past may have given up the goals, this team, you know, have, have a belief that, you know, you have to admire. There's no doubt that, you know, that there's, a, that there's a really sense of opportunity in this Irish team. The, the reality is, right, okay, is that, the, but I go back to the point. The coach's job, okay, is to make sure that when these three guys fail, and they will fail at, for for whatever reason, in, in, from an injury point of view, that we have the best options we have available after that. Doesn't mean they're going to be as good as the, these three guys, because these three guys are the top excellence in that sense. But I just think that, that um, Ryan's point about Joey Carberry. If Joey Carberry is our second out half, let's let's just for the point, point of view of this conversation, say he's our second out half. Okay. Well, then we've got to get him more time, on the basis that okay, we could have a situation where Sexton may get injured. I mean, Sexton got injured in previous World Cups. So he he may get injured. So we have to make sure that Carberry is at a higher level. But then you bring in the, the practicalities of the Six Nations and and the financial issues. And that's the point I would say as a coach, Farrell has to decide. Okay, as the coach, because his job is to be the coach, right? The RFU have their job, but Farrell's job is to say, I've got to make sure I have the best options available to me. Okay, if any of my stars get taken out, hmm. and that's the key that he he needs to be. And how do I get my best options available? Is only giving these guys more time at the highest level. Well, whether Johnny Sexton plays or not this Saturday is going to be a talking point for various reasons. Uh, the playing side, which we've talked about, and also uh, rugby when it comes to head injuries. So Brendan Fanning, page fourteen fifteen. Uh, really nails it I think in everybody's view pages uh, 14, 15 of the Sunday Independent rugby needs to come to its senses and and concussion and and the HIA the head injury assessment has been perhaps the big talking point across the two games and Brennan starts by picking apart the week there's the Jeremy Lockman injury against the Mary All Blacks on Wednesday quickly enough says Brendan Fanning it became clear to anyone watching a replay that Lockman got a ding when he tried to stand up after the heavy double tackle that brought him to a sudden stop he fell over as he sat there waiting perhaps his senses for perhaps for his senses to return he looked lost and Brendan Fanning says this was a disaster two fronts for Lockman himself and also Keane Healy wasn't meant to play the whole game but then obviously there was great surprise when Lockman came back on now Brennan quotes the very straightforward World Rugby guidelines in this instance, which is when uh, there is evidence of suspected concussion on the pitch, there is no need for a head injury assessment. And as he described Lockman there, there was definitely evidence of suspected concussion. Uh, his behaviour after that hit was very worrying. And so you would say, according to World Rugby guidelines, there shouldn't be a HIA here. 
the, you're just out of the game. And yet there was a HIA. And what's more, Lockman passed the HIA and he came back onto the field and he was only taken off at half time. And so Brennan says a number of questions arise out of this. Uh, he says, surely the independent match doctor who agreed to the Irish request to put Lockman through a HIA hadn't seen the evidence on the pitch, the video evidence that is, or else he would have knocked it back. The Irish say they hadn't seen the video of Lockman uh, after the contact either, but they did feel something was wrong. And Fanning also says, moreover, the doc somehow carried out the HIA without anyone tapping him on the shoulder and pointing out what had been obvious to everybody watching at home. How could that possibly happen is the question that he asks. And uh, he says, uh, after the game, the Irish camp had been quick to throw the independent match doctor under the bus, claiming he had access to the video evidence during the HIA and that crucially the first Ar- the first Ireland's doctor, Kieran uh, Cosgrave, uh, had seen of the damning pictures was at half time where he immediately took action. So the Irish uh, reporting of this, the Irish camp's reporting is uh, Lockman examined. They only saw the video of him clearly looking dazed and confused at half time. And at that point, they took him off. Um, it seems a part of this issue is that this wasn't uh, a test rugby match as such. And so with test rugby matches, there are a lot of spotters and um, seated pitch side and they have sophisticated te- technology to pick up incidents easily. Whereas the Merry game wasn't a full test. So it seems... The infrastructure wasn't there, yeah. All of that architecture around the game wasn't there. And again, you know, the point is made if this was at the Aviva Stadium, this would have been uh, spotted earlier. So... That's Lockman for the moment. We can come to yesterday's game in, in a second, but uh, Brennan Fanny makes the point at the end that Lockman uh, was blessed to avoid a second head injury that could have had catastrophic consequences. Uh, it was an, an avoidable scenario, and there's no secret in that. We'll get on to yesterday's match in a moment, but just the Lockman one, because the New Zealand um, investigation into how he came back on to him, they came out and acknowledged he just shouldn't have played again. But as, as Brennan Fanning says, you just come away with so many questions as to how in 2022... That that injury happened. Everybody at home saw he was uh, not well on the pitch and he should never have gone near a HIA, but he did. And he passed the HIA, which brings the whole HIA into question all over again, that he was able to pass in that state. And it was only around half time that somebody saw the video and, and then he was taken off. So it's just a terrible look for the game. It's a terrible look for the, for the game and it's a very fortunate uh, break, uh, I suppose, for Lockman in the sense that, you know, in the time he was on the field, well, obviously with, with this... Uh, uh, concussion that he didn't get any more serious damage. I think it, it, Brendan also says the Murray game was not a full test, rather its first cousin. I thought that line was actually very scary because you know we have an international team out there, and even if we're playing the Murray, you know um, the Murrays are playing you know local teams like it, everything should be done correctly. You know we're, we're, this is we are out on tour like with a full international team. Um, and it's not just the big games against New Zealand. There's other games. We we should be making sure that the procedures are followed. And you know there is a procedure. So, I mean, first of all, I mean the New Zealanders put their hands up right and said may culprit. But I also think that the Irish, the RFU, should be saying, well, why don't we have video evidence? It's our job to protect our players as well. There, he, he, he says that in fact. Protect- he says who did the recce and who agreed that these were the conditions. Yeah, I mean that's the point. So, so, so we knew that there was going to be challenges, and, and we accepted that. And that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Because mm. our job is to protect our players. Our job is to make sure that the facilities. Look, you know, head injuries are a real problem in, in a lot of sports, but you know they've become much more problematic, obviously in rugby, and been highlighted in the last number of years. 
And if you have procedures to protect the players as best as possible, then in your recce, you've got to make sure all these procedures are in place. You know, you can't say, well, we, we skip it on this one because it's a first cousin, as, as Brendan says, you know, to, 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 to a full test. So I just think what we have to be very clear, our primary job as an association is to protect our players. Our job as a coach is to get the best out of our players. And our job as, 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 as a sport is to follow the procedures. And the fact that the procedures of cameras and videos not being available in this is really damning on all involved, I would say. Joe. Yeah, I think it's another example of 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 the sport of rugby really letting itself down in the in the way that it's like. So you can you can focus on this just one example, but there are lots of examples of 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 the way uh, players have been allowed to play on and there is always a reason and and look we're dealing with human error as well and people make mistakes and you have got to recognise that but the overall look here is not a good one and 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 I I'm really concerned about where we're going here because there's the HIA issue when players are on the pitch and how that is managed then there is the part of the reason that we have HIA issues is because players were being hit up and around the head and the officiating of that from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere is lacking consistency by any measurement in my view you just have to look at the Gallagher Premiership and URC season versus the Super Rugby season and look at the different ways that incidents are being refereed you get away with a lot more in the southern hemisphere it seems that more is 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 allowed in the southern hemisphere but but what that creates is well international rugby this week and and players not really sure which which rules are we are we refereeing this week it, it, irrespective of that if, if if we're going to be serious about head injury then it's we're on the side of caution here until we get it right mm. rather than on the side of danger and we'll pull back from that again Mm. and then there's the third part which is the disciplinary process around that which seems to be well I'm around the game a long time and I don't understand it I don't understand how people get 12 week bans with 6 days off for 6 weeks off for good behaviour or it's only the 14th time he's done it so we're going to give him 3 weeks off or and I'm being facetious on purpose but but there is a lack of consistency and the truth is the game is in trouble in my view, for the way that it is being managed around head injury assessment, both on the pitch, off the pitch, and the consistency of officiating. And I'm not blaming the officials here. It's the consistency of officiating. And and we understand the consequences here. And this nonsense of physicality and wanting to dominate you can dominate the opposition physically without making the opposition have to pay for that 20 years from now Mm. right so that holds true in rugby in Gaelic games in soccer in whatever it might be it is after all at the end of the day a game you know and we're talking about truthfully we're talking about life and death issues here and and it is is that serious And, and you wonder why it's taking so long with all the scientific information that we have and all the examples that we have in different sports for us to say, actually, this is now the consistent ruling and this is the way it's going to be managed. And we're going to get it right over the next year or two years. And and I'm afraid all these variances of the incidents managed on the pitch, the incidents managed off the pitch, all add up to confusion and a bad look for the game and ultimately bad, bad situation for the players. Yeah. 
Brennan Fanning continues on the Dave Heffernan incident yesterday then. He says the Heffernan ding had much in common with Lockman's experience. Buried on his first carry, looked almost lifeless when trying to present the ball. And then he staggered in getting up. Unlike Lockman, he didn't fall over. Quickly, he was pulled aside by a medic. But after a consultation on the field, he played on for another two and a half minutes, during which time he scrummaged, cleaned and carried before being called ashore. Mercifully, he didn't make a tackle in that time frame. Seemingly, seemingly there was communication between the Irish medical team and the independent match doctor over the video evidence, and the latter decided to take the player off. So he's now out for 12 days. Uh, there wasn't a need for a HIA, so at, at least there was a difference in how Lockman was treated once he was taken off. And then Johnny Sexton was taken off right away. He failed HIA 1. Uh, he passed HAI 2 subsequently, Andy Farrell revealed to the media, and now there's going to be HIA 3 in the coming days. What, right, uh, so, so there, there yeah. is the confusion. So you have Jeremy Lockton and Dave Heffernan under one set of instructions, but because Johnny failed one and not two tests, we're talking about putting him back in in seven days' time. Mm. I mean, what, what part of anybody thinks that's OK? See, these are the protocol. Yep, no, I understand that. Yeah. I, I understand that, but 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 instinctively, so yeah. I, there's a there's a. Well, you, well, you've heard now, the phrase "the law is an ass." Yeah, <laughs> but like, it, it feels like the law is an ass here. Yes, this week. So the, the Lockman situation. He should never have had the HIA because of how he was behaving on the pitch. But then what really brings the whole thing into some kind of disrepute is somebody who had that hit and behaved that way was able to pass the HIA and get back onto the pitch and was only taken off after there was video evidence. Johnny Sexton seemed to fail his first HIA, pass the second one. Like, we're now back to a point where you'd have to say to anybody, do you have total faith in the HIA? And who could, really? No. And, and yet, it's, you know, it, it's, it's official and it's got its, its head injury assessment and it sounds like it's all-knowing and all-powerful. But, like, here in some several test cases, it's been completely undercut. But I, I, yeah. I, I, there, there's, there are no easy solutions here because there are so many head contacts in the game. But, but I think there are easy solutions, Joe. I think there's, there Just is. Out. A, yeah, out of the it's game. out. It's done and move on. And, 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 and that is where we are until such time as. Not until such time. You're, you're out. And, and, and people will say that will change the game uh, in a, in its, from its recognisable uh, game now to, to a different type of game. And the truth is, it, it likely will, but so be it. Yeah. Last word on this one, Tim? Yeah, I, I just to develop Ryan's point there, there are solutions, OK? And, and, and to me, what, what would be a very clear solution would be that if there's a, a player goes on with a head injury, it's, you don't have a chat with the player. It's the independent doctor there and then makes the decision. Okay, does and, and has video evidence, you know, as he's making that decision. The first priority is to protect the player. I mean, Brendan Fanning says it's it's a, it's a matter of time before consequences are catastrophic. So there are solutions. The solutions are take it out of everybody's hands, other than the independent medical doctor, and his only task is to protect the player. Not whether the player can play again is, is in in the game is to take the player out. If there's any danger, if there's any doubt, it's not a case he's he he looks to be okay. Is you know, we have to be 100% that he's okay. So my view is very simple. Put in a procedure and follow the procedure, but have an independent person at every situation and make sure that irrespective of the value of the player, because that will come into question, the value of the player, that the player is protected and taken out. And if he's out, then basically there's a, there's a set time that he's out for. Forget HIA 2s and 3s and that. If, if a guy goes off with a head injury, Joe, uh, he should be off and there should be a set time before he could play again. You know, the person that's closest to this thing the whole way through and they're already doing a huge amount as a referee. 
like referees see players go down referees saw Jeremy Lachlan go down and again there's absolutely no part of me blaming I think it was Wayne Barnes on this but Wayne Barnes saw him go down like for me that's a don't know whether you saw it or not he's out cold he's not coming back on and we're not having a conversation about whether the doctor saw it on the monitor whether the infrastructure was right etc like it's just done Hmm. you know we'll take a short break Ryan Nugent Tim McCarthy staying with us You're welcome back. Ryan Nugent and Tim McCarthy going through the Sunday papers. I appreciate there is a degree of listener fatigue maybe with the Armagh-Galway discussion. And yet some of the pieces in the uh, papers today really are standout and worth reading. Mick Foley in the Sunday Times talking about it. We have Mark O'Shea in the Mail on Sunday and Joe Brawley and Colm O'Rourke addressed as well. For instance, Brawley and O'Rourke, pages 12 and 13 of the Sunday Independent. Brawley is absolutely scathing absolutely scathing of well the headline says it Armagh's rotten culture and he starts off he's got a bit of form here though Joe with 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 McGinney let's let's call that sure (laughs) there is that there is that he says well he himself says Armagh have form and uh, so he says McGinney um, in his interview with uh, which we played last week people would generally have heard there's an exchange with McGinney and Mark Sidebottom at the BBC and he says instead of defending it in any way, McGinney should have uh, said what happened there was completely unacceptable and he didn't. And he does say, Joe Brawley, not all of the Armagh players were involved in the goading and hitting and the over-the-line tackling. He's talking during the game, not just in the melee here. But enough of them were to create an unsavoury atmosphere. It's the third time this season an Armagh game has boiled over into an all-out fracas. Uh, one melee is unfortunate two might be a coincidence three suggests a culture is what he said and he talks about Tiernan Kelly and uh, everybody's in agreement in condemning what he did but he does say that said he's a young man and he can only learn from this in the GA family we will protect him as we always do but we must also hold him and the management team that permits this culture to account and he starts referencing uh, some of the incidents that Armagh have been involved in in recent times. The game against Cavan where uh, Malie broke out during the parade before the game and he says in the course of the Malie, Cavan's Martin Dunn who scored eight points against Armagh in the previous year's championship sustained multiple fractures that forced him out of the game before throwing. And he mentioned that uh, it's infamous I think at this st- stage that infamous game between Dublin and Armagh behind closed doors at DCU where Davy Byrne sustained a facial injury that required surgery the following day and he quotes David Hickey the uh, eminent transplant surgeon Dublin team doctor at the time who recounted the episode to me last week says Joe Brawley uh, Davies Mann who by the way says David Hickey behaved disgracefully last weekend against Galway pulled his shirt over his head that evening and pummeled him very badly the attack on Davy was the worst assault I ever saw in Gaelic football is David Hickey's account and I told Jim Gavin to get our boys off the field and send Armagh home. What happened afterwards was a total or a typical GA conspiracy of silence. It was shameful. And Porg Duffy uh, wrote about that in his annual report where of the silence and the refusal of anyone to cooperate with the investigation. Porg Duffy said, group solidarity is one thing, code of silence that condones uh, violence quite another. And he went on to say the cover-up has damaged the GA's reputation. Uh, Brawley then says the following January, Armagh hosted Cavan, McKenna Cup, another very unsavoury affair. And 
on it goes really he does say again the majority of these Armagh players conduct themselves with honour and integrity on the field but there is a hardcore who do not and this is now an established pattern it's a rotten culture and in the end management is responsible I think it's I think I mean I was joking about about Joe having previous with Kieran McGinney I think it's important to say I think his article is really balanced and, and fair opinion uh, it, it isn't isn't a, a, a personalised attack it's he's laying out the case as he sees it and and, and when Joe does that uh, he's very hard man to argue with um, and, and it's a really really strong piece and you know, we'll come back to the to the issue. I'm, I'm sure in a moment about about actual gouging and where that has come from. Because actually, you know, it, you, there was a point where it was the sole uh, uh, weapon of choice for uh, South American rugby players, um, and 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 it is it somehow found its way into into continued through rugby and now into Gaelic games. And and in one of the articles, it may well be Tommy. Is it is it is it Michael Foley's? Can't remember, but but it was the list of of uh, incidents of gouging over the last four or five uh, years, maybe even longer, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 we've we've all heard of them uh, over the last uh, over the last week or so. It, it, it is. And Colm O'Rourke talks about it. It's actually Colm's Colm's piece is really good in terms of providing context for this. Mm-hmm. He said, and uh, Colm writes, in another life, I was part of a of a team who were not known for being too delicate. Maybe that leaves me in a better position. Strange as it may seem, I can recall. I can't recall any similar incident in my time with Meath. The players hit hard, sometimes unfairly, but it was upfront, and there was categories of foul behaviour which were completely outside the pale. I was involved in quite a few skirmishes at club level, but at that time there was a basic rule of engagement. Anyone who kicked, spat or headbutted was fair game for a good hiding, but I never heard of eye gouging until it became a problem in rugby. There are very severe penalties for that for specific offence in that in the game of rugby, but I have to say I find it hard to understand why someone would try to cause damage to another person's eye. The answer, I guess, is that sometimes the best of young men do extraordinarily stupid things. And Mick Foley takes up that point. He, he writes at length about Tiernan Kelly and he does, you know, talk about how Kelly had been playing very well for Armagh over the last couple of years and was poised to have a really big season and injury has curtailed his season. And Mick Foley writes, whether the frustration of a lost season somehow sparked the blind madness that engulfed him last Sunday as he gouged Damien Comer's eye, Kelly would also know that no excuse or explanation is sufficient. Uh, but he does say nothing about his playing style temperament or the trajectory of his career raised any red flags. He was a pupil at St. Paul's and Lurgan. He was made head boy. Uh, everything about Kelly was pointed towards great things but still last Sunday happened and after a week of silently suffering the public glare his 24-week ban was confirmed and uh, you know, uh, he was urged to make contact with Comer and apologise, which he did. Uh, the sense from Armagh was don't do any interviews and stay quiet. And uh, so uh, that's questioned in one of the pieces. Maybe it would have been better if he just came out and spoke of his regret, but he said nothing anyway. It's funny, um, O'Rourke, it's like him and Brawley have copy and pasted the point, but I suppose it's it's uh, a point which occurred to a lot of people. Not all of the problems at the end of normal times, says O'Rourke, were, were of Armagh's doing. Galway players and subs did their share of mauling. However, getting involved in one big melee in a year can be passed off. Two is getting very careless, but after three, there are very good reasons why Armagh now find themselves in the dock. If the decision, if the, situ- if the situation, excuse me, is dismissed by them as a media witch hunt, then they really have got a problem. And uh, um, you know, Brawley makes that point as well because in the exchange with McGinney, there was a degree of like, 
you know, McGinney was saying, well, you, you need to watch the video against Donegal. And th- there was a sense of feeling under attack, I would say, on McGinney's part. And like, it's very easy to go after Armagh. But, and, and Brawley takes up that point. He said, instead of McGinney just, you know, condemning the whole thing, he writes, instead it was poor Armagh. How dare the television cameras capture one of our players eye gouging an opponent? Do they not realise the eye gouger has a family? How dare people watch it on TV? How dare they comment on it? When a game is played in front of over 70,000 people and another three quarters of a million watching at home, it's a strictly private matter. The player's privacy has been invaded. It's a witch hunt. You know, and it, it does highlight the kind of fallacy of trying to point to this as a witch hunt. So that's a, a reasonable summary of the those three pieces. Tim, do you want to come in and, and, and what struck you? Well, what struck me was first of all that um, the unacceptability of, of of it from both teams, and I think Colin O'Rourke mentioned that in you know it is. In, if you take the incident itself, I mean both teams were involved. Obviously, the gouging was was specific to um, Tian and Kelly, right? And Mark O'Shea in his piece in the Mail on Sunday talks about. A photograph in the Castle Bar where I go down to meet my friend Gat Carey in Sri and he shows me these photographs of Kerry victories against Cork, but uh, a Cork player sticks an eye in the finger of Seamus Moynan and that, you know, Colin Cooper and Donny has had it. But he also says, you know, it's um, every dressing room could have that story, which touches on Ryan's point that how is it creeping from South America in, into GA? My view on, on this is, you know, is that unless you have rules and processes and really harsh penalties, really harsh penalty then this is going to carry on I mean this is not the first time there's been you know two groups of players having fights going into 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 tunnels at different stages half time or or full time or in some cases they come onto the pitch in that sense right and there's really you know like there's no real punishment Tierney Kelly got 20 you know six weeks okay Um, but the rest of them might miss a game and that could be appealed and obviously what the papers call out you know Armagh's ability to, 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 to go down the appeal route and Colin Moreau calls out about the CCC, the CAC, the CHE, the DRA and then every player's right to go to the high court. So when he contrasts that with rugby where there's the citation officer and you know they, they, they impose it independently and then there's this, um, an appeal and, and that's it, it's one appeal and, and that's it. So I just think that sadly you know, our, our, our national game is tarnished with this repeatedly. It's happened at club level. It's happened at obviously at the county level. It was vis- visible last week in front of you know three quarters of a million people watching it and uh, the seventy thousand people that were there. Um, and there's no place for it. Yeah, I mean, no I, 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 I think I think I pick up on that point because I think it's it's really you know the the, the GAA are rightly recognised for contributing so much to society in this in this country and and what they've done for local communities and for local people and the facilities. I mean. You could you could list the sense of achievements for the GAA for the next for the next half hour, but what comes with that is a responsibility, and I've no doubt they they understand that responsibility. But we're talking about at the highest level, we're talking about role models for the next generation coming through, and we're and 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 what has been allowed is is. A, a sense of being able to do things on a football pitch that you would not be allowed to do in the main on the main street or the main square of any town or village or, or city in this country. So that has to come with a consequence. And to to the point, that consequence is not again. We're talking earlier about rugby's consistency. There is no consistency around that. There's no sense that it is at a level that dissuades or discourages. And actually, in some ways, is a bit of a wink and a nod and says, "Go on, lads. That's great. You know, go on, lads. It's grand." And 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 that's you know, it's a societal issue. You can get you can get too lofty about this. I was just going to say, so get too lofty. I can get too lofty about this. The the eye gouging, of course, everybody condemns, and that's a moment of madness in that young man's life. And 
he'll always be tarnished with it and I, I feel a sympathy for him actually in some respects because of that because I'm sure he yeah, feels I horrific agree. okay so but you have to condemn that rightly and, and that was severely punished so park that for one second yeah. and I'm not sure we can just say well park it I'm picking and choosing but if we were to park that say the eye gouging hadn't happened how bad was the, the jostling yeah it looked ugly and there's lots of people involved but like, don't we have to allow for human nature here? This is a physical game. You're pent up. It's a bit of jostling. It's it's there is a, a, a sort of alpha male aspect to it where you impose yourself on the opposition and vice versa. Like you, you, the wink, the wink and a nod that you use is kind of an allowance for the understanding. This is a physical game, and these emotions are running high, and these things do happen at times. No? I'm not taking one side or the other, but what I'll say is there's lots of physical games around the world. Do you see that in in other games? Do you see that? I'll call it skullduggery, dark art, bit of wink and nod, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, and is it a uniquely GAA? thing I, I, you you tell me Timmy I mean what's your sense I, I, I don't see it anywhere else I guess ice hockey has its fair share uh, of ice hockey absolutely does yes good, and good like in, in rugby you do see coming togethers and people are holding each other now they, it's rare a punch is thrown and it, there was a headbutt thrown yesterday in the Australian England match okay. by one of the Australian players who who and when I say a headbutt it was definitely forward momentum on the head but it wouldn't be what you would have called something that you would see you know in its fullest sense yeah. definitely had sent sent off and I am guessing a significant ban coming for yeah, it yeah, yeah. you know and actually Joe on that point in the in the Australian game he actually had his hair pulled by the English guy so he was reacting. The, the English guy put yeah. his and he headbutted and he was sent off immediately so the point I would say about you know this wasn't handbags by the way yeah. this wasn't, wasn't just you know like guys bumping shoulders off each other like right the first thing I would I, I believe the GHB is doing is who was the first person to start this because the first person who, who was to start all this okay is the person who, who really is culpable in that sense so in my view there's no place for this this is not just handbags these guys bumping mm. off each other on alpha male and stuff this is people, okay, who are doing things on a football field they would not get away with doing in, in society. And if you take rugby, which is as physical a sport, and you could argue a more physical sport in that sense, okay, they don't, this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen that, you know, that, that, that the two teams are, you know, like take New Zealand and I'll just say, beat each other up as best they could physically, emotionally and psychologically for 80 minutes and shook hands after the game. I mean, so, so there is a problem. And, and the reason I believe the problem gets exaggerated in GAA, which is a sport I absolutely love, is that the discipline process is not consistently applied. Mm. And what happens is that, okay, now if, if I'm a coach of a team or a manager of a team, I'm trying to get my players off. To be very clear, I'm trying for the next game. I, that's my job as the player. But the, the, the system and, and the association should be black and white on this. I mean, it should be absolutely crystal clear. This is not acceptable in our national sport at any level, okay? Not just at the county level. And if you transgress, we are going to penalise you. And there's no ifs or buts in that sense. And you also, Joe, as well, have to question the, the officials last weekend when this was all going on. You have to question the officials. I mean, they took the easy way out and, and, and sent off the two captains, okay? They weren't the two players. I mean, it's proved that Sean Kelly hit, hit nobody. So, you know, there was, there was guys hit each other, like, and, and, and had no... Um, penalty against them. I thought it was disgraceful. I thought it was disgraceful. I thought it tarnished our national sport. Okay, people talk about it being a great game, and, and you know, I just thought it was a disgraceful episode. Not just the gouging. The gouging is unacceptable. We've talked about that yeah. 
But I just thought the whole uh, situation was just great. Did you? I'd like, I, 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 I sort of feel disgraced. Like, I, I don't know. I think I think what turned me back in their favour was the politicians getting in on the act. And I just thought there was such a hypocrisy there and talk of five-year-olds being traumatised by it. Like, That's a, same no, five-year-olds watching wrestling this morning, I guarantee you. Like, I just no, thought some of that was a bit much. I, I, no, I, sorry. I agree with that. I agree fully with that. That you know, that, but the, the politicians are making comments for different reasons. I mean, as yeah. you say, the five-year-olds are watching WWE and so <laughs> and that's. But the point is, I just thought as a, as an incident in its isolation of the incident, I just thought it was disgraceful. Did you? Well, okay, I gave you an aside. What was so egregious about it? I, lots okay. of people involved for sure, and and holding each other and all that. But like, disgraceful. No one threw a punch. Okay, what's disgraceful is that players can't. Okay, go into a locker room or a dress room, whatever you call it in that sense. Okay, and be manly enough to avoid their opponents and just get in and be, get ready for it. Uh, mm. But don't we have to allow for human nature? That encounter has happened so many times at that tunnel that it's obviously it's a natural emotions are high. It's just a certain environment where that kind of thing happens, and you, you can't take a backward step. And you know, I, I think we've got to be a bit I more understanding. No, that that mean, okay. that mean, that that means, and I'm I'm not again, I'm not arguing. But if you follow that argument through, you're saying it's part of the culture of the game. It is okay. So we're accepting that it's part of the culture of the game, and therefore it's okay. I'm uh, uh, fine, mm-hmm. but let's call it. Let's say that. But, but you know, if you take yeah. if you just take Ryan's point there. Yeah. And we've had instances in the past where these brawls between players have ended up in the stands. I mean, we had a situation with Tyrone at one stage. It could have been Armagh, but Tyrone at one stage, maybe Dublin. You know, they, they had big, the, the fights actually escalated into the stands in that sense. So it's just not acceptable. No, it's, you know, it's brilliant I, to see their, their athleticism. I, it's brilliant to see yeah. that. Let them just play the game. I appreciate it's not good. What would upset me far more, like I'll never forget being at a club match where the slitter was at the other end of the pitch and I literally saw a player lift his hurl and crack it over the back of his opponent and mm. the hurl broke. And it was that was an act of violence mm-hmm. and he should have been in jail. Never acceptable. Punching someone in the face, never acceptable. I thought there was a degree of last week which was just theatrics and then that eye gouging moment blew it blew into it a very serious thing and there's a there's a bit of that here you know there's a bit of that like for instance what was the Galway captain sent off for he was very involved Yeah. no no I, I think there's a nuance to the argument I do think there's a nuance to the argument and and, the, and and it's it's it would be easier to have this conversation without the gouging piece in the middle of it because you can't no can't, matter what no. way you, you look at it you can't get away from the gouging no, as, the, as the as the spark yeah I appreciate that I appreciate that uh, so Tim it is it is embedded and ensconced in the GA culture though, no? Club level up, like underage matches up, this sense of um physicality and, and, and sledging and uh being the alpha over your opponent and, and that that is very much part of the sport, no? And how do you get rid of that? Okay, well first of all it's definitely embedded. There's no doubts in that, right? Okay. And um so being the alpha and being physical and standing up to your opponents, that's all acceptable. Mm. I mean, that's all acceptable. What's not acceptable is the sledging. And what's not acceptable is, is you know, off the ball stuff and stuff like that goes on. Yeah. How you get rid of it is, you, you, you do, first of all, you deal with it as a, as, a, as a manager and as a club. But when it's brought to the associations, be it a county board level or at um, national level, you come down ruthlessly clinically on it you absolutely take it out of the game you stamp it out yeah no fair point see I think the interesting thing is that it's socially acceptable in GEA 
socially acceptable. You're not deemed as, like that evening around town, you're not deemed as like, geez, you should be ashamed of yourself because you got involved in argy-bargy. It's yeah. like you're glorified. Until it, I actually think until it's socially unacceptable, all the disciplinary uh, improvements in the world, well, it only goes so far. I think I think it's it's sort of celebrated and mythologised and that's part of GA. Like we had Eddie Brennan and uh, James O'Connor on with us during the week and they were, we were doing a nostalgia piece. Actually, like, a lot of the nostalgia is about like who hit who. <laughs> you know, like it just, it's mythologised in the GA and always has been. Doesn't, mean, that doesn't make it right, Joe. Well, that's ultimately, ultimately I know you're right and yet <laughs> people don't see it that way, I don't think. I think they do see a bit of, ah, sure, look. Um, anyway, we'll be the next time you're on, we'll be talking about it. I'm sure it'll pop up again. Before we go, Tim, you wanted to mention Owen Morgan, and there are several pieces on Owen Morgan who has uh, retired. And I guess Eamon Sweeney has a great opening line to sum the whole thing up. Really, Owen Morgan enjoyed one of the greatest of all Irish sporting careers. The fact that he played for England shouldn't prevent us from celebrating it. Discuss. I thought these two pieces were outstanding. Um, I thought that you know it, it actually highlighted how brilliant a sports person Owen Morgan was it, it, it highlighted his Irishness because he talked with the love of hurling and that you know that um, he just loves hurling but I, I think Ed Smith's piece okay in addition to um, Eamon Sweeney's talked about his leadership talked about his ability to make a decision and not flip even when all the pressure came on against him and I think people listening in business should think listen to this you know, he made a decision. He lived with the consequences of it. If the decision was wrong, he changes it and, and makes another decision. But he made the decision and lived with the consequences of it. It talked about the pressure of captaincy does not yield to a leader's emotional resources. For some captains, the jeopardy of decision-making fuels their resources rather than depletes them. The higher the stakes and the harder it gets, the more they love it. And that's what leadership is. And I just thought that Ed Smith captured it. And then... Eamon Sweeney, as you said, you know, the great, one of the greatest of all, all Irish sporting careers. I mean, he transformed this English programme. I mean, transformed it. I mean, he, you know, under his captaincy, they did things that they have never done. They won a World Cup. And I think then one of the great things and why he deserves for me tremendous respect, he had the, the courage to make the decision to retire when it was the right time to make it, both for him and for his team. And that's very difficult in a professional or amateur sport, knowing when to retire. So to me, I was thrilled to read both of these pieces. I'm glowing in my, in my admiration of what Owen Morgan achieved. And these two pieces, individually and collectively, capture the outstanding leader he was. Um, and England benefited more than Ireland. But that was just the reality of the sport he played. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I, I think it, they're excellent pieces. Eamon Sweeney's piece. I think it's important for people to understand that the, that, that that captain's role in cricket, and Eamon Sweeney makes the point, the captain's role is perhaps the most important in cricket. It, it, sorry, the captain's role is perhaps more important in cricket than any other sport. The best are de facto player managers given free reign in deciding on the batting and bowling and fielding approaches of their team. And, and that really gives you, you know, for those that don't understand it, like that, that, that role and that Morgan was able to, to fulfil it so successfully and what he's achieved it, it really does uh, mm. require the recognition that it gets in the papers today before we finish can I bring up one other thing which is the, which is the, hockey, the women's hockey yeah, please do. because I think it's important to, 
to reference that um, with the with the World Cup going on again and a new look Irish side qualified for the World Cup. I, I think you know, look, frankly, I know it was at a tricky time for the newspapers and 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 a couple of them, the Mail on Sunday and the Sunday Times, carry match reports. But considering we're talking about the World Cup silver medalists from four years ago, Olympic qualifiers, a team that have a connection with the with the Irish public, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It is it is a pretty paltry offering in the newspapers today, and I, and 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 I do want to mention that, even though I know I'm going to get slaughtered for it, but it it's true. Okay. Um, uh, the Sunday Times um, uh, piece is uh, is worth reading and and gives you a sense of where they are. You know, it's a, an Irish side with with four debutants yesterday, losing five one. Uh, to the Netherlands and, and I made the point earlier for the Irish women's hockey team to go and play against the world champions in their own backyard was akin to the Irish rugby team having to go to New Zealand and play uh, in New Zealand in their own backyard yesterday no easy assignment lost 5-1 not as bad as it as it might have sounded and, and, and remember this is an Irish team with no Anna Flanagan or Chloe Watkins or Nikki Daly or Shirley McKay so there were a lot of new players playing um, the big news for the Irish women's hockey team is really the whole, the whole tournament rests on their on their game against Chile uh, on Tuesday. If they win that, then they'll go into their final game group game against Germany a couple of days later with something to play for. So all eyes on them uh, on Tuesday and, and a new group and, and continuing development of, of of women's hockey in the country. Yeah, but could I just make a quick point? In, in thirty seconds, if you can, Tim. Okay. Apologies. Best, best of luck to the Irish basketball team. You played five o'clock in the, the big game against Switzerland. If they win. Uh, they have a chance of qualifying. And in the lightheartedness of the end of it, everything, on page two in Peter Variety's piece, uh, Jack O'Toole says, my brother Tom is playing against the All Blacks. This is surreal. And that's what sport is all about. <laughs> Very good. Tim McCarthy, appreciate it, Tim. Thanks so much. See you, Joe. Cheers. See you, Ryan. And Ryan Nugent, thank you for coming to the studio. Appreciate it. Thanks, gents.